Looking off into the week ahead, the big news around town is Pope Francis' upcoming visit to D.C. And while we might have some significant theological differences with the Pope, there's no denying that he is in fact a very important person. People from all over are coming here, descending upon the nation's capital with the hope of being able to see the Pope or maybe just being nearby as he delivers his address to our nation's leadership. Now, security on the mall is going to be as tight as it has been in recent memory. Not just everybody gets that treatment. While Pope Francis doesn't seek out this kind of attention, there's no doubt that he occupies one of the most influential offices in the world. So, who is the greatest person in your family? At your school? At your job? And chances are, they're not going to be as well known as the Pope. Unless, of course, I guess you're related to the Pope or work for the Pope, but I don't, any hands? No? Okay. But chances are these people are not going to be as influential, but they are still significant. What is it about them that makes them great? Is it a skill in a sport or an ability? Is it their popularity or their power or their wealth? What is it that causes other people to look up to them in some way? What makes them great? Jesus' disciples seem to be preoccupied with greatness. That's one thing that was reinforced with that gospel text we just heard from Mark of this one account of a journey through Galilee onto Capernaum. We don't know what kind of criteria they were using to judge greatness, to determine which one of them was, in fact, the greatest. But chances are their discussion might not have been all that different from one that we would have in this time and place. From the world's, or we could say the worldly perspective, greatness generally has to do with how important you are. You're standing above and beyond other folks. But like the disciples, we want to be great, not primarily because of the standing itself, because of the trappings that go with it. The power, the popularity, the wealth, the influence. That much, at least, has not changed in 2,000 years. And yeah, I said we. Even if we are not deliberate about it, you and I might inadvertently be seeking after greatness as we chase friendship with the world. In his letter to early Christians, James warned against just that because it's a pretty easy thing to fall into. Desire is a pretty powerful force. You see someone has something and you want it for yourself. Or you look to someone else and you see what they are and want to be like them. But when you think about it, there's another force underneath that desire, another powerful force, and that is pride. It's not good pride, though, like the pride you might have from an achievement, an accomplishment, something in which you would take joy. This pride is a self-important pride. That's the pride that seeks worldly greatness, the pride that wants to have friendship with the world. 
Now this friendship with the world is a tricky thing though. And we want to and we should be friendly with the people around us. That's not what James is talking about here. What he's cautioning us against this friendship with the world is friendship with the world that goes along with the world and shares with it in all things. It is a friendship which shapes our acting and our thinking. It's going along with the world in all that it would have us do. But if we do that, if we stand with the world in our action, in our thought, we're standing against God. Friendship with the world is in opposition to God and against his authority. And even if we are doing so inadvertently, standing with the world against God is not a place you want to be, especially as Jesus' disciple. However, each of us is still constantly tempted in this struggle to stand with the world against God. I spent just a moment considering the ways, the subtle means that the world is using to encourage and prop up its friendship. Those ways in which it is calling you to go along with it, to enjoy the benefits of greatness in its eyes. It might be encouraging you to enjoy luxury and comfort, even if that luxury and comfort comes at a cost. It wants you to put your faith in a box hidden away from all the people in your life, rather than that faith being a foundation for all of your life. It tells you that you need to be important, that you need to be appreciated, that you need to be great. But what does God say about greatness? Seeking to teach his disciples about true greatness, Jesus put a little child before them and pointed to him to show how God sees greatness. And back in the New Testament era, people would not look to children or give them any kind of real respect. They wouldn't look at them as someone as deserving of importance. Children were marginalized. They were without status or standing. They're about as far from worldly greatness as you could get. But that is exactly Jesus' point. Greatness in God's eyes is not about how important you are, what kind of welcome you receive from others. It's about how you welcome and serve those whom God values. Oftentimes, the people who are the least important in the eyes of the world, the least great. A few weeks ago, while we were on vacation, my family and I went to worship at a smaller congregation in the nearby community. We got there, we received a warm welcome from those gathered and noted helpfully in their bulletin that they had a cry room located just off the sanctuary. A great thing when you have someone who is in the not quite two-year-old age range. And before long, we were enjoying the patterns of worship and the familiar experience of being together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then it happened. Our daughter was on pretty good behavior with the occasional babble or chirp that is pretty common for kids her age. But as the pastor was delivering his sermon, 
A man in the pew in front of my wife's parents turned around to not so subtly suggest to them that the congregation had a cry room and we might take our daughter there now. So stunned, we left the sanctuary going over to the cry room to watch the rest of the worship service from there. Now later on in the service, the pastor's wife, who had noticed our departure, came in to invite us to join them for Holy Communion and assured us that children are indeed welcome in that congregation. And after the service, the pastor, when he had learned what happened, was mortified that the member of his congregation had act, acted this way and asked for our forgiveness. And I have no doubt that that congregation is, in fact, a welcoming place that seeks to have children present in worship. The man who'd shooed us out was an outlier. But how do we welcome the least? What if it were the Pope who came to visit? I don't think he's going to be coming to an LCMS congregation anytime soon, but what if? Would he or a small child with him have been shooed out? What about someone who was dirty? or disheveled, or different? And what if they didn't come to your congregation, to your place of worship, but to your workplace, or your home? What kind of welcome would you really give? As James writes, the antidote for our pride and self-importance and our friendship with the world is humility. Humility before God, humility before our fellow human beings, regardless of their standing. The only way to resist the devil and the temptations that our fallen world continually throws after us is by submitting to God and drawing near to Him. Instead of chasing after the trappings of worldly greatness, you and I are called to follow the one person in history who was truly great, Jesus. Jesus is the one who was servant of all, you included. In ultimate humility, he came down from heaven to be born as a tiny, dirty baby in an insignificant town in a backwater part of the Roman Empire. In love for both the greatest and the least in the eyes of the world, Jesus gave all he had and suffering and dying for us and our sin on the cross. So if true greatness is about how you welcome and serve those whom God values, Jesus is the embodiment of greatness. His arms stretched out in welcome for all of us, offering forgiveness and life to you and to me. As Jesus' disciple, you were called to welcome the least. And one of Pope Francis' primary efforts has been to lift up the church's calling to care for the least in this world around us. In response to the massive refugee crisis now unfolding in the Middle East and Europe, he has called local congregations to reach out to provide support and housing for these refugees, especially their brothers and sisters in Christ who have been driven from their home because of their faith. He's even seen that a Christian refugee family has been given an apartment there at the Vatican. 
And if you want a practical way to serve those whom God values, these least in the eyes of the world, consider how you might support the work of organizations like Lutheran World Relief in this time of crisis. So what's greatness? Going out today and in each of the days ahead, let go of friendship with the world, knowing that God meets your deepest need in his son. Humble yourself before God and draw near to him in Christ, who has given himself for you. Living as Jesus' disciples, welcome the least as Jesus has welcomed you. In God's eyes, that's greatness. Amen.